Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Okay, I specifically requested that song by Black Uhura because the more that I prepared for today's show, the more I realized that's kind of the question. But I also think, with the possible exception of Krista Tibbet, I don't think any show on the radio spends as much time <laughs> wrestling with that question. What is life? Where are we? Or as Einstein said, is the universe a friendly place? Or in the words of David Byrne, how did I get here? So this is one of those shows, and I hadn't really thought about Dante in the past as a great way into this, but wow, he is. And, you know, when you start noticing, you start, it's like anything else. You start thinking about it, start noticing it. Uh, it's everywhere. Uh, and so last week, for example, the Pope uh, shouted out uh, five great Americans, or five great Americans that he mentioned. One of them was Thomas Merton, uh, whose hallowed work, The Seven-Story Mountain, of course, derives its title from Dante's way up and out of the pit of purgatory. And last night, well, if you're listening anyway to us uh, live on Monday afternoon, September 28th, what did everybody do? They looked at the night sky, uh, and thence we come forth. Uh, we came forth again to see the stars. Uh, that's how the inferno ends. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just sort of high on Dante, but I'm kind of seeing him and his words and his ideas uh, everywhere right now. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. And the words. Uh, of one of the uh, writers and scholars uh, and practitioners that we'll have on the show today. We're going to be talking about how Dante can save your life. Uh, and we're serious, too, about that. Um, as we go along, well, we're live here in the afternoon. You can participate. I'll give out the phone number later when it's likely that you might have something to say. If you already have something to say, uh, you may tweet us at WNPR Colin. Um, and so we've got great guests here today. I, I was thinking there are some shows that when I inherit the work from the producer, um, I think, okay, I can only screw this up now. It's really just, it's the perfect show sitting here on the page. Uh, it all started, I think, because uh, one of our guests, uh, Joseph Luzzi, uh, was in our studios for other reasons, and we found out about his book. And he's a professor of comparative literature at Bard College and the author of In a Dark Wood, What Dante Taught Me About Grief, Healing, and the Mysteries of Love. So Betsy and I decided we wanted to do a show about this. And then Betsy, because she's a great investigator, realized there are other people working. I mean, it's too glib and modernist to say it's a thing, but it is kind of a thing. I mean, this notion that Dante has this transformative ability or this, this that he's kind of this diving board into self-examination or into basic questions of what it means to be alive uh, and what it might mean to die. Um, it, it's it's out there and it's being practiced in lots of different ways. So in studio with me, uh, Ron Jenkins, a professor of theater at Wesleyan University, visiting professor of theater uh, and the arts at Yale Divinity School. He's taught Dante 
Conte in prisons uh, in Connecticut, Italy, Italy and Indonesia. Um, his current course is hosted by Yale's Institute of Sacred Music in collaboration with the McDougall Walker Correctional Institute. We're going to find out about the Dante Project, what happens when uh, Dante goes into prisoners. And uh, joining us in just a second by phone, Rod Dreher, senior editor uh, at the American Conservative. He's the guy who wrote How Dante Can Save Your Life, very much a story about uh, his journey home uh, and about what happened when it turned out not to be. Well, it's very, I don't know, we'll come to it, but... It's very Odysseus-like in terms of how Odysseus turns up in the Inferno. So um, I want you to meet all of them. Uh, we are going to start out with uh, Joseph Luzzi, who's the guy who got us going on this uh, in a way. Um, so, um, Joseph, maybe the first thing to do, because people toss around Dante's Inferno and talk about which ring of hell the Kardashians are going to be in and all this kind of stuff. But, I mean, I don't think people necessarily quite understand what the divine comedy is, from whence it springs. So can you give us like a um, 122nd course uh, in uh, the divine comedy just to kind of get things going? Sure. Uh, Thank you so much for having me, and I'm glad that uh, we met that day in the studio and that the show is happening with these uh, great guests. Uh, Basically, Dante wrote an epic poem called The Divine Comedy. Most people only read The Inferno, and it's been this way for centuries, and that's a great misfortune because the entirety of the poem actually ends with this sense of unbelievable cosmic beauty and fulfillment as Dante comes to the end of his journey. And Canto 100, uh, he journeys through hell, purgatory, and paradiso. And it all happened because of his midlife crisis when he was, um, he, as he writes, when he was 35, midway through the journey of our life, he found himself in a dark wood and stumbled into hell. And Virgil was his guide through hell and purgatory. And then Beatrice, of course, his great muse, came and saved the day and led him through paradiso uh, to his maker. And um, that's this 14,000-line poem basically on the state of the soul um, after, after death. You know, the crises in our life can come from within or from without, uh, and it, that's something that the poem explores very much. Uh, but, Joseph, your your immediate crisis came from without. Um, you suffered a terrible loss, and it, it happened at a time when you had been researching uh, and teaching uh, Dante for a very long time. I, explain what happened that suddenly suddenly made you need Dante in a different way. Yeah, you know, Dante had been the center of my uh, research and teaching for— uh, I'd been reading him for about, you know, almost 30 years and, and teaching him for 20. And in 2007, um, in November of that year, my wife, Catherine, uh, had a fatal car accident. And the morning of her accident, uh, right before she died, she gave birth to our daughter. She was eight and a half months pregnant. Our daughter was rescued by an emergency cesarean um, after the accident. And so in one morning, I found myself a widower and a father almost instantaneously. And I slipped into grief. It was so sudden. It was so shocking. And, um, you know, I, I for a, a long time afterwards, it was just a struggle to to try and rebuild my life. And as I was rebuilding it very slowly from the hell, you know, the hell of grief, or I call it the underworld of grief, because it was a lot like, you know, the the pagan underworld that Dante's mentors, uh, mentor Virgil wrote about, to the purgatory of mourning. Um, Dante was my guide. And then as I was able to rebuild my life and get to a better place, 
the more um, happy moments of his poem resonated me as, as well. But I would say that, you know, Dante had been there beside me personally and professionally as, as, as you know, my bread and butter, so to speak. But I really only heard his voice for the first time after Catherine's accident. I, I could, it was almost like I could hear it from his words to my ears because um, he wrote about something that became a, a mantra uh, for me. He wrote about exile. At the height of his powers, when he was one of the leading poets and politicians in Florence, Dante was exiled. And he spent the last 20 years of his life forever a stranger, uh, forever removed from his hometown and desperate to return to Florence. And his words on the experience of exile really summed up what it felt like for me to... I wasn't exiled from a city, but I felt as though my late wife's death had exiled me from the life that I had, from my own happiness. And so I could really... I, I felt the personal pain that Dante experienced in writing the Divine Comedy in a way that I had never felt before. Um, one of the other ways in which there's just an obvious connection is that Dante um, is directing so many of his own um, erotic and spiritual energies at Beatrice, who's gone. So Beatrice is the love of his life. Uh, he has, uh, by his, in his telling, he has had, in fact, very few encounters with her. She dies at a very young age. But it, it does raise this question, can love outlive the physical body? When we think of the people that we love, we think about people that we see and touch uh, and experience in our lives and can talk to on the phone. The people who are gone, we tend to talk, them, talk more about missing them than we do about loving them. Uh, but one of your questions, uh, I think, was how, how to have a relationship with Catherine, who is now gone, that in some way resembled the relationship you had when she was still there. What, what part of it was still doable and livable, right? Yeah, that's a great, great um Point you make because really one of the big questions for me in the immediate hell of grief was how do you love somebody without a body, right? How do you uh, love, continue to love your wife when she's no longer there and all you have is, is memories that are so painful to inhabit? In fact, one of the hardest things after her death was dreams in which she appeared because um, she wouldn't speak in the dreams. She was remote, nothing like she had been in life because I think my image of her was that something that I somehow had to also let go of, you know, love but let let go of and distance myself from to to get back to to start rebuilding a life. And someone once asked me to reading, you know, what Dante didn't teach you, <laughs> and I would say that one of the, he didn't teach me that much about relationships with women. Oddly enough, because you know Dante's relationship with Beatrice is so sublimated, it's so spiritual. She's his muse. He had he worshipped her from afar. He only saw her a few times in life. It wasn't a traditional love relationship, romantic relationship. Um, but if Dante as a person if his relationship with women weren't, you know, something that I could emulate, his characters tell the story unbelievably well. I think of the great canto of Francesca and Paolo, Dante's two sinners in Inferno Five, and they're condemned for an eternity to, you know, they basically buffeted by the winds of lust. Um, they committed adultery, and, and they're in each other's arms for eternity. And you think that could be a happy resolution, but they're both 
sad. Francesca, uh, Paolo's, pa- Paolo's always weeping, and Francesca tells her story. And to me, that became an emblem of, in a way, passionate love cannot exp- live, um, cannot survive death. You know, uh, Paolo and Francesca have passion, but they don't have a body, right? They're, 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 their lives are over, and so they're sort of... Uh, confounding punishment, if you will, is that they're wrapped in each other's arms, but they can never consummate this passion. And it, it, um, I do think that one of the things we'll come back to again and again, Joseph yeah. Litzi, is that, you know, there in the inferno, so many things that are um, horrifying are also beautiful. Uh, and, you know, I mean, not from nothing, I, I think we'll hear it at the end of this segment, not from nothing did Tchaikovsky write one of the most beautiful pieces of music he ever wrote about Francesco and Paolo, his Francesco de Rimini. Uh, there is, in, even in the sadness and the horror, horror and maybe even the self-deception we hear from from Francesca, uh, there is still this uh, in- incredible sense of of how beautiful um, love can be. They've gotten in themselves into a terrible mess that they don't completely understand, but there's still something very attractive about it all. Uh, oh, absolutely! And and Francesca herself is such a seductive. You know, creature, the way she greets Dante, she says, Oh, animal grazioso, which is, you know, oh, gentle creature. And she tells this this heartbreaking story. And she seduced so many critics. The great Italian critic Francesco de Sanctis, you know, says that Dante, how can anyone read this canto and, and essentially not fall for Francesca? And I think that um, that's one of the things, Colin, I think we should think about. Why are we so drawn to inferno to hell mm-hmm. it's because they're relatable they're so human you know uh these are people that have um made the wrong choice in life that have sinned that have have fallen uh you know by the wayside some of them did truly horrible things others things that are more understandable but i think we we see ourselves uh in inferno uh, victor hugo the french writer said when I don't agree with this, by the way, but he said, as the higher we get up, he says, um, the human eye was not made to look upon so much light. And as Dante's poem becomes happy, it becomes boring. (laughs) Now, I completely disagree because I think Paradiso is just stunning, you know, gorgeous. T.S. Eliot said it's the the most beautiful poetry ever written, and I would I would agree with that. I think it also depends uh, on sort of where you are in life. And by the way, what you're saying is a perfect segue to bring in Ron Jenkins here. Sure. Uh, uh, this whole notion of, of why we're drawn to the Inferno, why some of us might be uh, more drawn to the Purgatorio, uh, and, and so in terms of people who've made wrong turns, made bad choices, done things in life that they uh, have reason to regret. Um, Joseph Luzzi is walking around basically with the instruction manual in his hand. Uh, he's had it in his hand for decades. Um, the people that you've dealt with don't. Uh, explain how it is that you came to bring Dante into the prison system. Um, well, I discovered that I could learn a lot about Dante in by teaching him in prisons. And I brought my Wesleyan students and my Yale students into prison to, to, to work with him. Um, and, uh, and I discovered that a lot of stereotypes are shattered by going into a, a prison with a text like that, because th- although the commonplace understanding of Dante is a, you know, is a writer who writes about hell and awful, horrible things, the men in prison immediately understood that this was not a, this was a poem about hope. They immediately identified with Dante, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons they identify with Dante is that he is not only an exile, but he was also a convict. Mm-hmm. He was convicted of crimes. That's why he was put into exile. And as soon as men in prison hear that, they 
they pay attention more closely. And then when they learn he was also condemned to death if he ever returned to, uh, to Florence, his home, then they pay attention even more closely. They I can identify with that experience of being exiled from their lives, not being able to return to their families and their homes. Uh, so they identify with Dante's journey uh, through hell, through purgatory, to a better place, and they they can connect to that. They 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 latch on to the hope that's in Dante's poem. As Joseph said, you don't want to stop in the inferno. You want to go all the way to paradise. And they they want to think about where they can go when they leave prison, if they can leave prison, or where they can go spiritually even if they never can leave prison. How big a lift is this for them? In other words, when you come in and say, look, we're going to read the work of, of uh, an Italian poet who lived in the 1200s and 1300s, um, is everybody ready to do this? Have they heard of it before? I mean, uh, how does this how does this play initially? Initially, it's very confusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, the men have no idea why why I'm there, why we're reading Dante, what we're doing, what relevance it would have to them. Uh, but by the end, there's incredible enthusiasm, and the men themselves are weaving their own stories into Dante's stories. So, at the end of our sessions, we put on a performance where the men. Uh, tell their own stories interwoven with lines from Dante in a performance for other prisoners who also have no idea who Dante is for the most part. And uh, the, the, the men in the last session that we did with the students from Yale at McDougall Walker, the men after the performance, a week later I went back and the performers, the men who had been performing Dante, said to me the best compliment they got from the other prisoners after the performance was a compliment they heard many times. The men said, it was real. Mm-hmm. It was real. They understood that Dante was about them. Often after these performances, I've heard many times the men say, oh, I didn't realize Dante was about me. Mm-hmm. Um, because Dante really is, is, you know, is about, uh, as you said at the beginning of the show, understanding what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. You know, we teach in the humanities, but sometimes we forget that that's the point of the humanities, understanding what it means to be human. And somebody like Primo Levi, when he was in the concentration camps, uh, felt that he needed to remember Dante. He needed to remember Dante in a situation that could be really dehumanizing, that was dehumanizing. But somehow Dante is a humanizing factor. You know, Ron, there are certain pivotal points um, in the Inferno uh, and in the Divine Comedy that people come back to over and over again. And looking at your work and Joseph's work uh, and um, Rod's work, it was interesting. I have to make sure I keep my Ron and my Rod uh, straight in my head here. It's kind of a little bit uh, mind-boggling. But um, there was one place where you guys all went there, or maybe in your case, Ron, the prisoners went there. So I'm going to have all three of you kind of give your take of the take on this. And it's it's the it's the Ulysses scene. All right, it's the scene where Dante encounters Ulysses, and and Ulysses. Um, is quoted in a way that resonates, Ron, with some of your prisoners. You were not made to live like brutes, but to pursue virtue and knowledge. So say what I, I'm going to ask you to say what that means in the prisons, and then I'm going to have Rod and, and Joseph talk about the Ulysses passage and, and that passage in particular in their respective stories, because I think there's just interesting ways in which these kind of match and don't match. But So what do the prisoners see there? Well, uh, prisoners respond to that very strongly. The, the ones that I remember most vividly are the prisoners I worked with in Indonesia who actually were convicted uh, to death. Mm-hmm. They were condemned to death. And, they, and I didn't realize it until we'd been working together for several weeks, once a week. They were the, 
these two men, uh, Jackie, uh, um, Andrew Chan and Mayuran Sukur Maran, uh, were Australians, and they were the most enthusiastic students. Uh, they were encouraging the other students when the other students said, oh, this is too hard, I have to give up. They said, no, no, we have to do this. We have to do this, almost the way Primo Levi was trying to encourage the other man he was teaching to Dante to remember this one passage that you've just quoted. Um, and only later I realized in the middle of our sessions that they were convicted to death. And it meant so much to them not to live like animals, but to pursue knowledge. They wanted to pursue knowledge. They, they encouraged the others when we had to uh, choose a song. Dante talks about songs that are inspiring that he hears in paradise. They chose a song that inspired them. They chose uh, uh, Amazing Grace as one of the songs. And I discovered that, um, that when they were uh, executed after many attempts, you know, uh, many of us wrote letters to the Indonesian government, the Australian government wrote letters, the American French Service Committee that I work, work with wrote letters, but to no avail. And uh, Andrew and Mayu went with six other men to face the firing squad. And as they were waiting to be shot, they sang Amazing Grace. And that, that, that is John Newman, John Newton, that guy, the guy who wrote that song. He, he, he could be in Dante. He would be a guy who climbed the seven-story mountain, too. He's talking about a guy who gets out of purgatory. I mean, his story. I mean, he's a slave master, the worst kind of slave master. He's, he's so perfect. I mean, if he lived in a different time, uh, he'd be in this book. So, um, Rod Dreher, with your permission, I'm going to kind of skip ahead, and then we'll circle back and sort of talk about how you came to this work and how it came to inform your sense um, of exile and repatriation. But if you don't mind just skipping ahead initially— one of the things you do write in your way is about the same passage, right? You're looking at Ulysses. And, you know, as I said before, everything that's dark and duplicitous in, in the Inferno is also potentially beautiful. So Ron's prisoners see some beauty in those lines. Uh, although I think your reading of Dante on Ulysses is a little bit different, right? Right. Uh, Ulysses, we have to remember, is condemned for being a false counselor. And he used his gift of gab to mislead the men under his authority and to inspire them to do something that he, he wanted them to do, but they had no business doing. What that did for me, this whole passage, was to make me look in on myself at the way I, as a writer and as a user of rhetoric, uh, have often allowed myself to be deceived by words. And no one is a greater deceiver of myself than myself. It's part of my whole journey through Dante and trying to figure out how to get out of the dark wood I was in. I had to go look inside my heart and see how some of my most noble motives uh, for the actions I had done amounted to me talking myself into something and concealing from myself what I really was trying to do. And that might sound a little abstract and confusing, but in the in the whole context of, of my journey, uh, this whole this whole meeting with Ulysses in Inferno uh, made me have to penetrate the the cloud of, of self-deception that had gotten me off the straight path. So, um, Joseph Luzzi, I, I think at one point in your book you're giving a speech or a talk to the Dante Club of Westerly Rhode Island or something, I, that, that, that there is, even is such a thing. It's kind of mind-boggling. But that's their motto, right? That line, yeah. that's, that's, <laughs> that's their slogan. And so they're looking at it not so much in the Dreyer way, more in the Jenkins and, and the prisoners way, uh, as an affirmation of the search for knowledge. That's right. Uh, and that's, that's the, you know, the, 
the incredible mystery of Dante is that you can, it can be read in so many different ways and make so many different sense to people. Um, and in the sense of experience, it would change their lives, their interpretations of him. But my relation to the, um, to those lines is almost a synthesis of the two, um, what Ron and Rod talked about. And Colin, believe it or not, your show will somehow come into this in that when I was, after my wife died, my family, I have this large, loving Italian family in Rhode Island, and they helped me raise my daughter. And part of my book is about my difficulty in assuming fatherhood, learning how to be a dad, basically, as my family helped me raise my infant daughter, especially my mom, who was in her approaching 80 and had, you know, six kids, 13 grandchildren. So I would drive from Bard to Westerly, Rhode Island, twice a week for almost three years uh, along Route 84. And one of the shows I listened to every week was the Colin McEnroe show, <laughs> was one of the nice parts of that journey. But it was a brutal experience. I felt like I was slogging up Mount Purgatory as I took that ride twice a week. And the one thing that Ulysses resonated to me so much was, you know, as a scholar, there's this great mystery. Why does Dante take Odysseus Homer's Odysseus, who is the symbol of homecoming, who is, you know, who's in Calypso's cave, who showers him with everything. She's a a, a nymph and she has these, you know, feasts and dancing girls. And all he wants to do is get back home to Ithaca. And he weeps an ocean of tears for her. And then when he gets back and Dante, he leaves. (laughs) Dante's Odysseus becomes the, the Latin Ulysses and he leaves. And, you know, there's all sorts of religious interpretations of it. Um, but what I really think Dante's telling us here, and it was something I had never approached as a scholar, I think what he's saying is that the worst kind of exile is internal and that sometimes you can feel exiled from the places that are most familiar to you and that you love the most. I went back to my hometown, which I hadn't lived in really since I left for college, and I felt like a stranger there for years. It was very difficult and painful. And so I I felt like I was living, um, you know, Ulysses's sense of alienation from Ithaca and home when he, he feels the need to leave and that, you know, Dante's brilliant insight is that sometimes the place you think is home and that becomes a symbol of, you know, in a way what will save you really is no longer home. Yeah, you and Rod Dreher are going to get along great in the next segment uh, because he's he basically, you just stole his line. Uh, but uh, I, I'll just conclude by saying I think another part of this is too, so so much of this, that Odysseus story is, is pegged to that Greek notion of nostos, you know, that going home, the welcoming home. But um, I tweeted a poem to you earlier today, Joseph Lucy, by Louise Gluck, where, about Odysseus. It's called Odysseus's Decision, where I read that, and I, I think I read Dante as saying, who do you ultimately serve? You know, what, what's, what really does speak to you? And in some ways, I think for Odysseus, part of the problem is the journey speaks to him more. The narrating mm-hmm. sea, as Gluck says, speaks, that's his narrative more than I'm home with Penelope and Telemachus and oh, we're all just happy as can be. You know, he's spoken to much more by this other thing, and that may be part of his doom. Uh, but what do I know? We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about exiles. We're going to talk about uh, homecomings. Uh, we're going to talk about Dante's Inferno and the Divine Comedy.
All right. Uh, we're talking uh, about the Divine Comedy. We're talking about Dante. We're talking about how Dante can help people heal, can uh, save their lives, uh, how it can help them understand the terrible position that they're in when they're in a terrible position. Our guests are Joseph Luzzi. Uh, he's a professor of comparative literature at Bard, and he's the author of In a Dark Wood, What Dante Taught Me About Grief, Healing, and the Mysteries of Love. Rod Dreher is with us. Uh, he's a senior editor at the American Conservative. He's the author of How Dante Can Save Your Life. And Ron Jenkins is here in studio with me. He's a professor of theater at Wesleyan University uh, and a visiting professor of theater and arts at Yale Divinity School. And uh uh, someone who has brought Dante into prisons, prisons here in the U.S., uh, in Italy, in Indonesia. Uh, we're going to talk more about that in this segment. We're going to talk about the notion of exile. Okay, so Joseph Luzzi uh, set us up perfect, perfectly, Rod Dreher. Uh, it really sounds like those words that he said could have come out of your mouth about going home and expecting that, that feeling, uh, that Greek feeling of nostos, and instead uh, having a very, very different experience. This is pretty much what started you on the road to Dante. So give us a, a thumbnail sense of your story. Well, that's exactly what happened to me. I, I was born and raised in a small town in the Deep South, in South Louisiana. M- my father was a, a tremendous man, an immense man, a Southern gentleman who had very strong ideas about the kind of son he wanted, and I wasn't that guy. And I did not get along with him in my teenage years. He wanted me to be a a country gentleman, and I just wanted to have my head in books. So I I exiled myself uh, as a teenager and got away from this small town, thinking that the, the constrictions of living in a small town were not for me and certainly not living in his house. But, uh, and I had a journalism career on the East Coast and did well for myself. But in 2010, my younger sister, who had stayed home, developed cancer, lung cancer, terminal cancer. And uh, she lived for 19 months. And when she died, I was living in Philadelphia, and I saw so much goodness come out of this town and my family in the light of her passing that I said, you know what? The world looks different when you're in your mid-40s and when you're 16. So I want to move back home and take my place and help take care of my mom and dad and my sister's kids. I did that. I moved home at the end of 2011, and I got here, got a really good book deal to write a book celebrating my sister's life and small-town life, and then I found out that they weren't going to receive me, that, in fact, they had all nursed grudges against me for having left Louisiana, having turned my back on them, on our heritage, on the family and the land. Very Southern story. And that even though I had moved all the way back and moved my wife and three kids back to the town of 1,700 people, that wasn't going to be good enough. So I was in exile even though I had come back home and done and fulfilled what I had been writing about for many years about the loss of roots in American life and the fact that we're always going after the new job. And I was guilty of it, too. But now I had done all the right things and found myself in permanent exile. That's where Dante spoke to me. And, you know, so I'm going to tie Ron Jenkins into this, too. So, um, you know, exile is such a complicated thing. And, you know, uh, Joseph Luzzi talked about it in terms of, of trying to go physically back home. But um, but all, there are and Rod Dreher saying the same thing. There are all kinds of ways in which we experience exile. Uh, and as uh, I think jo- Joseph was saying, exile sometimes is an internal thing that you can move geographically back to where you're, you think you're supposed to be, but what's going on inside is a whole different set of things. But I'm wondering for, for the prisoners you've worked with, and I think in particular, I, I guess this is a, a particularly strong story, part of the story for the prisoners in Italy that you've worked with. So tell us about that. Well, I think one of the most profound forms of 
exile is something that's been in the news a lot in the United States. And you find, I found that when I talked to men in Italy who had been in solitary confinement, they, you know, it's just an, you know, unbelievable form of exile. It's it's hard for anybody who hasn't experienced that. They always say to me, "Oh, tell your if you want your students to understand, tell them to lock themselves in the bathroom for a day, see how long they last." Mm-hmm. Um, but we're talking about years that men have been in solitary confinement in a room that they never get out of. And one man I'll never forget in Italy talked to me about a line from Dante that reminded him of the moment that he was released from solitary confinement after five years for only an evening because they had to transfer him from one prison to another. And it happened in the evening. Um, and he remembered that evening because it was the only chance he had to look at the night sky for 10 years. Mm. Uh, he'd been exiled from the sky, from the universe. Mm. And he, and when we read that line together, and then we emerged again to see the stars, which is the last line of the Inferno after climbing up the crusty hair of the devil's back, Dante and Virgil see the stars again. He, he read that line and he wept and he remembered. And, you know, and to hear that line read by a 70-year-old man with a dagger tattoo on his forearm, uh, remembering 10 years of solitary confinement is unforgettable. You know, it, Ron, this sort of raises that whole question of the relationship between the arts and life. So in some ways you feel as though, well, these are the arts and the humanities, and then life is lived, in, you know, particularly by these people that you, you're, you're dealing with, life is lived in this very vivid and direct experiential way. What can the arts possibly have to say to them that's more vivid than what they're actually going through, what they've done and, and what they've experienced? But I guess the answer is a lot. Well, that's why, that's why I like to bring my students from Wesleyan and from Yale into the prison because they can understand the arts and literature and the humanities in a completely different way, and I understand it in a different way. Every time I go into a prison, I learn something new about Dante's text from the experiences of the men that they relate to me. You know, I, I, I can remember that, 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 that horrible story in the Inferno about Ugolino, who's locked up in a tower with his children, and at the end of the story, you don't know whether or not he's eaten his children or not because they've, they're starving to death. And, and I found him one of the characters that I could never relate to. I, I didn't believe him. I thought he was excessive. His, you know, his, his language was too excessive. And the men in prison uh, stopped me, and they said, you, said, you don't understand. That's the way people speak when nobody ever believes anything you say. And then you realize, I was taken aback, you realize that some people live like that. Some people live in a world where nobody believes everything, anything they say. You know, I'm a professor, people write down what I say. But for them, that's, that's, a, that's something you have to, to live with. And they understood that as Dante had written it. And almost nobody else could. Certainly my students who come from privileged backgrounds, most of them couldn't understand that line or that story in the way that they understood it after hearing about it from those men. All right. I I promise I'm going to get us to paradise in the uh, uh, final segment of the show. But Joseph Luzzi, one of the things that he just said uh, resonated so much uh, for me with your book. So he's describing this man who's, you know, locked in in solitary confinement. This is, you know, like 23 or 24 hours a day. I mean, we have a lot of people in the U.S. who are also in that position. And so when the minute he started talking about that, uh, I thought, well, he's in hell. And that's, of course, a line from your book, too, within days of uh, the, the death of your wife. Um, 
you're walking around and you run into a woman, a clergywoman, uh, and she just says to you, you're in hell. Um, and so we don't want to dwell in the inferno, but isn't that sort of one of the fundamental questions? How do you get out of hell, whether you're locked in solitary confinement in an Italian prison or locked in grief uh, from the sudden unexpected death of your wife? How do you get out of hell? Locked in grief with a large Italian family, right? <laughs> I, th- I think which which rescued me. I, I I know that, and a lot of my book is an homage to them. Uh, I would say that the thing, some one of the things that um, Ron said that resonated with me is that, of course, it's you. These aren't comparable situations when you talk about a prisoner who's physically placed in solitary confinement, and you know is 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 not permitted to to have access to the external world. But for most people, and I write about this in my book, grief can be a kind of isolation. Uh, For me, it was an incredibly lonely experience, and I was blessed with great colleagues, great friends. I had resources, a great job, you know, uh, on paper what looked like a good life, and yet it looked—I was— imprisoned in a way or stuck in this in this grief for my late wife and it took me a lot to get out of that i describe grief in the book as an electric state i i think we associate um electric states euphoria with joy and and pleasure but there's a kind of negative euphoria that grief brings with it everything is heightened there's a kind of drama to it i think freud called it an, an invisible illness that no one can see you know you're not limping you don't manifest um any disease and yet there is something incredibly painful like a sickness that you're living with and what got me out of it was um love and by that i don't mean love of another human being that that would come much later and that ultimately can do something that a book can't. I, I, I believe that as much as I love literature and books. But love in the sense of I loved literature. I believed in it. It was kind of a secular religion for me. Um, I believed that, you know, in the power, the the thing that I turned to in, in my darkest moment was my love of great writing and great books and my favorite author. And I somehow found comfort and solace in Dante's voice. Part of it was because of a shared sense of, you know, he had been through something so, um, this otherworldly pain and got through it and without pretending in any way, you know, to, to be able to emulate Dante, whose talent is uh, extra extraterrestrial, I thought his moral lesson was one that I could live with. And I, I just want to go back to one thing that Ron said earlier that really struck with me about hope. I really think that is why we turn to Dante, because, you know, the gates of hell say, all ye who enter here abandon hope. But that's that's a lie, because people have been to hell and gotten out, whether it's in the Christian tradition, Christ, or in the pagan tradition, Aeneas, Odysseus goes to hell and gets out. It's Hell is that state in which you are threatened with the loss of hope, and which can bring you down. But what I learned in my own experience, was that it's not what lands you in the dark wood that defines you, and I thought it was for the longest time, but it's what you do to get out. And for that, I, you know, Dante's the greatest example of how you get out of a dark wood. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with more stories from uh, all three of our guests as we explore what Dante can do for your life. Summer here walking on the passage to heaven and others can't get 
When you decide that Dante has a profound connection to quantum mechanics, you've either arrived at a central truth of the universe, or you've had way too much coffee. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Zachary LaSala and Amanda Gallagher. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff touring the gluttony section of the Inferno, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the modern meaning of masculinity. And now, back to Colin. At a certain point this morning, I became that person. Like, I thought I could explain everything in terms of Dante's Inferno. I was like, I was listening to Fred Savage. I was thinking, okay, I could, I could tell your story, uh, a la Dante. It's, it, it all is explainable that way. So uh, I would b- deserve a ring of the Inferno if I didn't do an extra shout-out to Betsy Kaplan on this one. I mean, I work with incredible producers all the time, and they, they make me sound a lot smarter than I am, and that's certainly happening today. Um, so we're talking about um, Dante's Inferno and, more importantly, Dante's Divine Comedy, the overarching work in which the Inferno is embedded and may be overemphasized. Um, and if I introduce everybody all over again, the show will be over. So, Rodre, I want to go to you because Joseph Luzzi was talking uh, about, um, uh, I think he used the term, uh, an invisible illness uh, and um, uh, a sickness. And so this is one of the places your stories wind, winds up too, right? You got sick and you're not exactly sure why you're so sick. That's right. Uh, I ended up being diagnosed with chronic mononucleosis. And went to a rheumatologist who tested me and said, you've definitely got it, but there's no underlying reason why other than intense stress. What do you have to be stressed over? I told him that I'd upended my life to come home and realize that my family, it's like the, the prodigal son story, if the father in the story had taken the side of the jealous elder brother. And uh, he said, well, you've got to leave Louisiana or you're, you're never going to recover. You're not going to live. And I told him I couldn't. He said, well, you better find inner peace some way. And that's how I stumbled into the Divine Comedy. But uh, Joseph was talking about um, grief and and the way it imprisons you and how love uh, set him free. That's close to what I experienced. But I I think we have to remember that everybody who goes into the Inferno is there because they are imprisoned by themselves, by focusing on their own egos and their own passions and defining themselves by their passions. That was certainly the case for me, and I didn't know it until it was unmasked by this by this journey through through the inferno but for me also purgatorio was so valuable that especially his dante's encounter with marco in the terrace of wrath where dante the pilgrim asked marco how does why is the world such a mess that i've come from and marco tells him listen you know if you want to see what's wrong with the world if you want to fix what's wrong with the world fix your own heart first for me the divine comedy gave me such a sense of agency that what was happening to me in my own world, with my family rejecting me, I couldn't change them, but I could change how I dealt with it. And as an observant Christian, I felt I was connecting with a specific love, the love of God that commands me to love them in spite of the injustice with which they treat me. And that, in the end, was the the thing that liberated me, getting outside of myself, 
and my own ego and quit and I quit thinking about what was happening to me in terms of being a problem that has to be solved intellectually really it was a problem of the conversion of the heart you know Ron as I'm listening to Rod talk I'm also thinking you know everybody's at a different stage uh, of their life story and and when I think of all the people <laughs> all the people who annoy me um, uh, that they're I they invariably strike me the way that he's saying that there are people they haven't really had any kind of reckoning with who they are uh, they haven't any, made any kind of reckoning with who they with who they've done with what they've done uh, but I'm assuming the population that you're dealing with they can't help but have moved to a different stage if you're in prison you're it would be pretty hard to hold at bay some of the issues that rod's talking about yeah many of the men and women that have worked with in prison talk about the fact that it's in prison that they confront themselves and that they can find to use the uh, the word that rod used a sense of agency paradoxically that um, maybe they can't control their environment, the fact that they're in prison, but there's other things that they can control. And to see a character like Dante look at that sign, abandon all hope, you who enter here, and not pay attention, go right through it, go right past it. He has hope that he's going to get somewhere else. And that's in, in, inspiring to people in prison. And, and uh, they, they, Dante really wrote himself out of hell. He wrote himself to paradise, and the men in prison can have agency over their writing, what they write, and feel a sense that, okay, we're going to write this, people are going to listen to it, people are going to, the fellow prisoners are going to listen to it, people at Yale are going to listen to it, people at Wesleyan are going to listen to it, our families are going to come to hear it, perf- our words performed at a university and maybe feel proud of us. There's the, and, and in every prison I've worked in, somebody says one way or another in more or less the same words that the moment that I was performing these words or the moment I was singing in this performance, then I felt free. I should say, we Betsy and Ron have another show cooked up for that's coming later, so if you're getting in touch to Ron, don't worry, he's coming back. But let me just uh, just very quickly, I think one thing that's important to mention is some of the um, people that you've worked with, I think it's been uh, mostly women prisoners, uh, have gotten out of prison and are teaching assistants with you now. I mean, you know. uh, yes, some of them have done that. Not at the moment, but yeah. uh, f- um, the three of the women who worked with us at York uh, Women's Prison in Connecticut uh, came out and uh, I, they continued working with me in performing Dante and performing their stories woven together with Dante's stories. And we did a tour of the performance to Harvard and to Brown and to New York as a fundraiser for the Women's Prison Association. And they said to they said to me, when we came out of prison, it's so hard to readjust to society. But I guess I guess the theme of homecoming, when they were with Dante, they felt home. Right. They, said they were welcomed by Dante. They were welcomed by me and my students and they a, a place that was familiar to them. We could cut everything else. Uh, you know, they were estranged from in a way, but here was something that they could carry back from prison that was that was positive. So that was uh, that was that was an experience for them that helped them in the really difficult process of reentry. All right. So this is a two hour show that's been pounded into a one hour show. We're running a one hour hole. We're running out of time here. But Joseph Luzzi, just to, I want to come back to something that you said before. You st- I think you said that you made love a secular religion. And so uh, maybe this is a, a thing we have to say that that here's this masterpiece, but it's a masterpiece. It's a, you know, 13th and 14th century masterpiece uh, that involves some very traditional notions of faith and then some very non-traditional notions of faith, too, I think. But it it is a religious work in in being read now in, in a less religious age. 
And so, uh, you know, I guess that's sort of a question is who do you have to be in terms of faith, your notion of the soul? Can you be a physicist? Can you be a secular humanist and still work with this material? Absolutely. I, I, I think in a way it reminds me of um, the recent comments by both Rod and Ron. Is Rod talked about the importance of admitting his own mistakes and in a sense that scene with, um, you know, look into one's own heart. And I always tell my students, Dante, the greatest gift to humankind from God is not the intellect, but is free will in Dante's eyes, and that ability to, you know, to take, assume agency, make choices, and to connect with what Ron was saying, that comes into what we, the stories that we tell ourselves. In a religious sense, we could call it confession, you know, the tradition of confessing to a priest for for absolving of one's sins, but I think literature, in a way, can be a kind of confession. Uh, Dante's book is not a modern autobiography, in the sense it's not about the enigmas of the self. He only names himself once in the entire poem. You know, Purgatory 30, I think it is, when Beatrice names him, and she's basically yelling at him for having strayed from her love. But it's about the self in relation to the world, in relation to uh, one's faith, and the act of writing the Divine Comedy became a home for Dante, became a kind of religion that was both doctrinal, he was a Christian, but also the, the, the religion of literature. And I lived that very deeply because when I wrote my book, when I, in a sense, told my confession, the thing that had really you know, plagued me for many years was not so much what happened to my wife. You know, I was a victim. It was a terrible accident she was in that, that was... My life was overrun by that, and and that was so painful. But the difficulty of becoming a dad, you know, going from being a biological father to being a true dad to my daughter Isabel, who was born as a result of the accident. And unfortunately, uh, Joseph Lutti, as a regular listener, you're gonna, you know that we're going to have to stop yeah. here. It's breaking my heart. I want to hear the rest of the story. But, but I just wrote, writing the story, admitting the mistakes that I had made, helped me understand what it meant to be a father. And that was a kind of confession that if I hadn't ri- written this story, I wouldn't have gotten there. All right, we have to stop. Thank you, Joseph Lutzi, Ron Jenkins, and Rod Dreher.